Uh, so we're in 2 Peter 2. I'm not going to jump in the whole passage right now. We'll get, we'll get through it in chunks as we go through this morning. Um, Chuck Swindoll calls this passage one of the least pleasant chapters in the Bible. So that's always encouraging. Yeah, you know, nothing like finding, finding that little nugget from someone that's been preaching for 45 years or whatever, whatever Chuck Swindoll's been doing. Um, and so we're, we're in 2 Peter chapter 2, and, uh, and I just want to step back a little bit because uh, Justin preached last week and worked through the first 10 verses, and it's actually pretty hard to separate uh, the first 10 verses from the rest of the chapter, even though there's just so much to cover in the whole chapter. So I want to I just step back real quick and cover the, the arc of the whole chapter before we jump into verses 10 on to 22, which is basically like, a rant from Peter against false teachers. So just buckle up. <laughs> um, so the arc of the whole chapter is this, that uh, verses 1 to 3, if you're in 2 Peter, you can kind of look at this, breeze through this, kind of check, check, you know, check the beginning 10, pa- 10 verses there. The arc of the whole chapter is this. In verses 1 to 3, Peter, again, is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, so this whole group of churches all over this region, um, and is telling them, telling the churches, okay, not telling just like the world, but the churches, that there are false teachers among you. That in the midst of these churches, there are false teachers. And so he's saying in verses 1 to 3, the, the false teachers are present. In verses 4 to 10, he gives a handful of examples of how the Lord uh, saved the godly and brought judgment on the unrighteous. And so verses 4 to 10 is just this explanation that, man, though there are false teachers among you, don't worry about what they're doing, okay? The Lord is going to judge the false teacher, and the godly will be saved, just like Lot was saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah, just like Noah was saved out of the, the flood waters, okay? The godly will be saved. The Lord is faithful in saving the godly. And so don't worry about these false teachers and what's going to happen to them because their judgment is sure as well. What the Lord is going to do with the righteous and the unrighteous is clear. There's a judgment coming. And so Peter wants to get this across to us very clearly. Um, one of the big things that Peter is challenging is a belief that Jesus is going to return. That, that he's, you know, yeah, he died, but he actually rose and ascended to heaven, and he's going to be returning. And when he returns, he'll, he'll come in judgment, at a judgment throne. So he's going to discern between the sheep and the goats. He's going to discern between the godly and the unrighteous. And what's happening in the midst of these churches is that there are false teachers coming in, and teaching that, you know, morality doesn't actually matter because Jesus isn't coming back. It's just like he's just a good example to kind of live by faith in. And so we can like be spiritually connected to God because of Jesus, but it doesn't actually matter what our flesh does. We can do whatever we want with our flesh. And so that's the false teaching that has got in among the churches. Um, a, a tickling of the ear, a, a pleasure in your, own, in your own self, and doing whatever you feel. That's why Peter starts out this whole book saying, I am a slave to Christ, right? I've submitted myself to the lordship of Jesus. He is my king. And he also says, I'm an apostle of Christ. I'm sent by Jesus. I'm not sent by my own desires. I'm actually fulfilling, my, fulfilling the Lord's desires in all that I do. 
So not only have I submitted my, my flesh to the Lord and his ways, I've also submitted my desires for my life to the Lord. So Lord, whatever you want to do in my life, I'm submitting to your plans, not mine. And so these false teachers are coming in going like, eh, just do whatever you want, because Jesus isn't coming back. So Peter comes at them. <laughs> he comes at them hard, right? He says, listen, church, there are false teachers among you. And I need you to be encouraged in this fact, that false teachers will be judged and the righteous will be saved. This is the truth of the gospel. Not by your own works, but by the blood of Christ Jesus, you will be saved. And so whatever the circumstances may look like, whether you're being persecuted, whether you're being uh, called, you know, uh, I guess, a, a holy roller or whatever you might be, whatever names these people are calling you and they're looking down on you for like trying to be holy like the Lord, trying to be like him, um, they'll get their due and let the Lord have their judgment. So he's saying to them this, um, these false teachers are circulating in the church and minimizing the pursuit of moral living under the guise of grace and faith. Uh, Paul deals with this in, in Romans as well. He says, well, since there's grace, should we just sin that more grace should abound? He says, by all means, no. When you receive grace, something changes in your heart. Your desires start to change. Your will starts to change. And instead of being prone toward sin, you're prone toward righteousness. And so these false teachers are coming in, don't worry about being prone to righteousness. You, you're, you're safe in Jesus, so just do whatever you want. It's grace, right? That's the sneaky thing about it is that, uh, that they're say, Peter is saying, they're among you. They're going to sound appealing. You might be shocked by, by who's walking in this. And so he's saying, this is, this is appealing. It's, not, it's secretive and, and destructive. And he's saying, it's among the church. As Justin put it last week, false teachers do not deny him in the sense of not using the name of Jesus, but rather they deny Jesus' lordship in their lives. And so they may be teaching through instruction, uh, the false teachers, or by their example. It's important to say from the outset, when we're talking about false teachers, we're not just talking about someone who's formally teaching, you know, like me standing before you and formally sharing a word. We're all teachers. We're teaching one another all the time. And so false teaching comes through formal instruction, yes, but also by example in the church. Either way, the teaching is present in the churches that Peter is writing to. He's saying, watch out among yourselves because false teaching is, is present. The fruit of this false teaching is the presence of people who claim faith in Jesus, yet live lives that indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, is what verse 10a says just before our passage. He says, these are those that indulge in the lust of, of defiling passions and despise authority. So they've embraced the passion of their flesh, and when anybody comes against it, they despise any authority saying otherwise, right? So it's like both things happening simultaneously. Not only am I convinced that I can have whatever passions I want, also if anybody tells me different, I'm just going to ignore you. So we should not be surprised when Jesus warns us in Matthew 7. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, your workers of lawlessness. We think about Jesus as like the one that's talking about love all the time and grace. We have this picture of his teaching as it's just love. And, but when he talks to the religious, he is firm and he is straight. And that's what Peter is doing now among the church. He's saying there's those among you in the church that are purveying false teaching. And so the Lord would say, man, there's going to be some that you that come at, come at the kingdom of heaven and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things, these powerful things? And he said, I didn't know you. Peter speaks a firm and hard word against false teachers in our passage today. And uh, before I jump into it, I just want to speak to why Peter is so worked up about this false teaching. So yeah, there's false teaching among us. It could be in our examples, it could be in formal teaching, it could be all these ways, right? But why is Peter so emphatic? Why is he so at cause with this? Why is he going after this so hard? Peter is so passionate about this because he knows that eternity is at stake in the midst of the church. You know, we gather you know, together, and I just love worshiping, you know. I love all the different styles of worshiping, like Sebastian and Brittany do a great job. Marcus is a great job worshiping. Justin is a great job. Abel, like all these different worshipers worship in a, in a different way, and it's a beautiful thing. But what it's all about, right, as we come to gather in church, is being in the very presence of God. We're connecting in time to what is happening in eternity when we sing praise to God. These words of holy, we, we, we could sing them all day long. We do not know the weight. As much as you feel it in your flesh, even this morning, that man, that's such a powerful song and moment, you only know a breath of it. And so in church, what we're trying to do is connect with eternity completely. And so Peter is so passionate about false teaching in the church because it's saying we're supposed to be connecting with a holy God. And these false teachers have made a mockery of that. Our works in the church are dead apart from a surrender to the Lord Jesus. We can play the part, look the part, do the part, but unless our hearts are surrendered to the Lord Jesus, our works are dead. But our surrender to the Lord Jesus for entrance into the eternal kingdom that he produces, look at 2 Peter uh, 1.11, will produce righteous works. The false teachers claim that we're free from worrying about works altogether, whether righteous or unrighteous, because they do not accept the testimony Peter described in chapter 1 about Jesus. And, and this is what Peter said in chapter 1 about Jesus. A few things I want to point out that his divine power has been granted to us to partake of his divine nature and escape the corruption of our fleshly desires. That's what he says. That, that our faith is rooted in the love of Jesus and it will produce a continual growth of righteousness within our hearts. And finally, that, that Jesus has established an eternal kingdom and that he is going to return in a majestic glory. This is what Peter is saying. In chapter 1, he's getting out there the gospel. He wants to put out the gospel to the churches and remind them this is what Jesus was about. This is the true teaching. He has given you a divine nature, not by your own strength, but in Christ. He has given you a continual sanctification in your heart, not by your works, but by faith and love in him. 
He has given you an eternal kingdom. This time on life is not all we're living. After this, we go before the throne of God and we either say in truth, Lord, I surrender to you and it's all you always. Or we stack our cards on our own works and say, look at these things I did, the mighty works. The trouble is that this false teaching is attractive to our hearts and that it's not surrendered completely to the living God, to our hearts that when they're not surrendered completely to the living God. Peter says false teachers are secretly bringing in destructive heresies. That's in verses like 1 to 3. That put the eternal destination of those who are swayed by them at risk. So we as a church and as believers, looking at ourselves and one another, we must never lose sight of the fact that our one concern for one another within the church is first and foremost an eternal one. There's beautiful wisdom in Scripture, and it can change our marriages, it can change our parenting, it can change our jobs, it can give us many blessings if we follow the wisdom that is in Scripture. And we can be better people as a result of what the Lord has revealed in His Word. But if we lose sight of the fact that all that inheritance is from an eternal purchase by the blood of Jesus, then we've lost the whole thing. And so Peter's saying, beware of these false teachers. They've minimized actually the only important thing of the message that is Jesus. And so our salvation bears fruit in sanctification. Justin challenged us last week to thirst for God's word as we think about the presence of false teachers. said, how do you how do you recognize false teaching? You know what is true. You know what is true. You don't have to learn about all the religions, okay? You don't. You don't have to learn about all the uh, different heresies that may be out there and which ones you might be prone to or whatever. You don't have to learn. That might be helpful to you, but you don't actually have to go do that research. You just have to bow before the throne of the Lord Jesus and accept his forgiveness for your sin and repent and believe on the gospel over and over and over all your life. If you do that, you will see false teaching and you will know it without even learning it. So in verses 10 to 22, Peter goes off, okay? And, and all that is, is why he goes off, right? Because he knows, man, he's looking at a body of believers that he loves and cares for and says, man, people are robbing you of eternity by false teaching. And his heart is going out to them, just emphatically wanting them to know and understand what is at stake. And so he calls it out as, as bluntly as he possibly can do. And so in verses 10 to 22... I see three major things um, that he's calling about, out about false teachers, and we're going to walk through those. First, false teachers minimize the reality of spiritual war. Second, they gratify the desires of their own flesh. And finally, they promise what they do not have. Okay, false teachers minimize the reality of spiritual war. They gratify the desires of their own flesh, and they promise what they do not have. Verses 10 to 11, it says this. So just to note grammatically for you before I start, 
sorry, all the big long introduction, sorry. All of these descriptions hang on Peter going, there are those that uh, despise authority and, uh, and are indulging in the defiling passions. So this is his full description of those who uh, indulge in defiling passions and despise authority. He shares this is their teaching. Second part of verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. I don't know about you, but I was really confused about that the first time I read it, and when I did research on it, did my normal reading about the passage and all, my first reading of it was way off, okay? I was like, oh, I am straight wrong about this. Um, and, and usually, sometimes there's like debate about like hard passages and how to interpret them and, and all this. This one actually, there's no debate really. Everyone's pretty much decided on this even though the wording is very confusing. So I'm gonna walk through it with you. Um, he says, these that uh, indulge in defiling passions and despise authority, they, they are minimizing the reality of spiritual war. And th this is where we get that from. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. When I first thought of that, I thought the glorious ones must be like the Christians, right? Like in my mind, I was like, these false teachers are blaspheming the Christians, and that must be what he's talking about. But then it gets confusing because it says, but the angels who are greater and mighty in power do not pronounce blasphemous judgment against them. But like, why would the angels pronounce judgment against Christians if they're like, we're on the same team, right? Like, we're with the angels. They're, okay, so it gets kind of wrecked at that point. So actually what is the pretty much solid interpretation across commentators I read on this is that glorious ones we should think of not as Christians, but rather as, and this might be feel out of, out of left field for you, but assure you, many people attest to this, um, the glorious ones is actually evil spirits. Bold and willful, the false teachers do not tremble as they blaspheme evil spirits. Like, I didn't know I could blaspheme an evil spirit. I thought they were already blasphemed, right? They're evil. But the point here is, and actually one of the things that really solidly backs this up is in Jude, which is, a, which is kind of a partner passage to 2 Peter. Uh, in Jude, it's very expressly shown that Michael, the archangel, will not speak a curse against the demonic when they're fighting over the body of Moses, is what the description is. Because Why? Because the Lord is the one who stands in judgment, Okay. We don't stand in judgment over good and evil. Okay? The Lord is the one that stands in judgment over, over uh, good and evil. And so even the angels will not step forward and go, judge you, evil spirits, because that's the Lord's work. And so bold and willful, these false prophets blaspheme the evil spirits. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, right, would be to say, you don't exist. Right? Holy Spirit, you don't exist. I don't acknowledge your power. I don't acknowledge your lordship. I rebuke you. Right? That would be blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying your power is not real. And so flip that in this passage and go, these false teachers are saying 
the evil spirits don't exist. They're blaspheming the existence of evil. Saying evil doesn't matter because it has no power. I don't know if you've ever sinned, but I have. And <laughs> understatement of, this, of, the, of the whole sermon. Um, you know and I know that sin is not just in flesh. Sin is spirit. And when you sin, spiritual ramifications are happening. Yes, fleshly consequence may occur because of sin. But even more so, spiritual consequence comes because of sin. We know that evil spirits exist. We know their power. You might recall the story of, uh, of um, Saul in the Old Testament. Saul actually desires, goes to a, divine, a, a diviner, a diviner, whatever, um, I'm missing the word right now, but goes to this woman and asks her to conjure up the presence of Samuel. And guess what happened? Samuel showed up. The Bible is very clear that evil interaction with the spirit realm is real. And Samuel came out and why, said, he said, why did you do this? Samuel came back to Saul in the spirit and said, you're not to be bringing me back from the dead. And here I am. What's the deal, Saul? I thought we had this thing settled out. But he didn't. So these false teachers are denying that evil ones even exist. Even angels will not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the evil spirits because they know that vengeance is the Lord's, okay? We don't have any role to play in judging the evil spirits, okay? Or judging those who are evil. Thank the Lord, that is not our position. But we are foolish to pretend we have control and authority over the evil spirit realm. To minimize the strength of the demonic is to blaspheme its power. And if you're in a position where you're going, yeah, these things are kind of real, but I've got control of it, and it's okay, you've missed this whole piece in the gospel, which is the only one who has authority over the demonic is Jesus. And so the false teachers have taken Jesus out of the equation and said, because I'm a spiritually powerful being, I have authority over evil and demonic things, they don't have power over me. They blaspheme that which actually in the spirit does have more power than you. The only way you stand in power over the evil spirit is to say, in the name of Jesus, be gone. Only by the power and authority of Christ do we have authority against the attacks of Satan. And we are in a very risky place to be thinking that we are in control of that which is spiritual. Do not play, okay? Don't play with all this. It is out there in full force all over the place, okay? Whether in substances or whether in new age belief systems, okay? We are synchronizing all this stuff in our culture all the time and throwing Jesus on it as a stamp and saying, it's okay, I have control. You don't. The Lord does. 
And so the false teacher would say, I'm more powerful than evil spirits. And Peter is saying, no, you're not. And so if you're going to boast against the evil realm, do acknowledge, please, that it exists and it is powerful. But also boast in this, that Jesus is infinitely more powerful. Okay, the moment you try and fight the battle, you're fighting Goliath without a sling. Okay, the moment you're standing in the power and authority of Christ Jesus, you are thousands of times bigger than that spirit and can say, get away from me in the name of Jesus. So let us not be like a false teacher who says, ah, the spiritual war, that's just fairy tales and fables. Has no power, has no authority. Magic is just kind of fun, you know. These games we're playing, it's just kind of fun, you know. We're just having fun. No, you're not. He describes them further in verse 12, says, but these... Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. The wages of sin is death. In every sense of it, okay? In the final judgment, the wages of sin is death if you don't have the Lord Jesus. In the temporal judgment, okay, the wage of sin is death. When you sow into sin, you will reap the consequences of sin. And you know that if you've ever sinned, which I think you guys have. I have. I think we established that. And you know that when you sin, okay, when you sin and you're married, guess what? There's a distance that starts to grow between you and your spouse. And your spouse, because you become one, actually knows that pretty quickly. And if you've ever been in patterns of sin, I've been there, immediately a distance begins to come. And so he says, listen, these false teachers, they're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters they're, that, are, that they're ignorant about. And I thought it was kind of harsh, right? But listen, born to be caught and destroyed, he's just calling what animals are. He's saying, these false teachers are like animals. They're saying, well, I'm an animal. I'm just going to do what animals do. I'm going to eat what I want to eat and kill what I want to kill. I'm going to create more life. I'm just going to be an animal. I'm just going to do whatever my flesh tells me to do as an animal. And he says they're acting ignorant, blaspheming about matters they're ignorant in. He's saying they're acting like the spiritual war doesn't exist, but it does. So Peter says, beware. They'll be destroyed in their own destruction. False teachers minimize the reality of spiritual war. Second, false teachers gratify the desires of their flesh. The second part of 13 says this. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. The false teachers gratify the desires of their flesh. They, they actually enjoy the deceitful game they're playing. It, it gives them pleasure. So they do it in the daytime, he says. They count it pleasure to revel 
in the daytime. We thought that sin was just after dark. They're saying, no, we like to do this in the day. Reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So while we're having food together, they're enjoying this deceptive game. Saying, I've got them fooled. They think I'm this, but I'm actually something not. They find pleasure in deception. Second, in gratifying the desires, they do not resist adultery. Verse 14 says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. We talk a lot, especially in men's group, about um, being accountable for that which what we see, right? The Lord says, if you even lust over a woman in your eyes, then you commit adultery. And so many men has taken up a fight to not do so, right? And what he's speaking about, the false teachers, that these false teachers who are claiming to be Christians don't even avert their gaze. Don't even try, okay? It's a difficult thing living in Florida. Okay, people don't like to wear a bunch of clothes. It's hard. As a man, it just is. It's a difficult, it's a challenge. It really is. And I don't think I'm speaking anything that anybody doesn't know in that, okay? And he's saying about these false teachers, they don't even try to look away. They just continue to look. I've seen this, I've seen this at the coffee shop. We've seen this at the coffee shop. We've seen this, right? Dude. I never, I just, it's crazy. It's crazy. How much have we seen of this? Uh, you know, I've always known men to be sneaky about what they look at when they're looking. But I remember one time distinctly, group of men outside, girl walks by, they literally made no bones about it, practically catcalling at the girl that walks by, encouraging each other to keep looking and gazing. That's the description here. There is no boundary at all for these. He says, these false teachers, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable. It cannot be stopped. It will not end in them. They continue to look without any conviction of it. This is the false teacher. They entice unsteady souls. They say, well, it's in my flesh, so I just have to, I have to embrace it and enjoy what is here to enjoy. They have eyes full of adultery. Finally, they're motivated by greed. The end of verse 14 says, they have hearts trained in greed. Literally, the word is for gymnasium. Like, they're experts in performing greedy acts. He calls them accursed children in that moment. They're motivated by greed. Um, here, Peter jumps off and, and describes their, their father, their figurative father, um, as Balaam from the Old Testament. Uh, he calls them uh, that, that they followed the way of Balaam. So when he talks about being accursed children, he's talking about them being students or children of Balaam. When Peter describes... Um, Balaam, in verse 15, he says, They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. And Balaam, the son of Beor, is the actual name 
of Balaam in the Old Testament. If you go look at Numbers 22 to 24, it's Balaam, son of Beor. The word here in your Bible is translated Balaam, son of Beor, but it's actually Bosor, uh, which is the, or Basar, which is the Hebrew word for flesh. And so the word we're actually using here is Balaam, the son of his flesh. Throughout this, and I just can't even do justice to the, like, the poetry, I guess, so the, the, the wording throughout Second Peter, he is literally doing alliteration throughout this whole thing in the original language, okay? He's like, play on words all through. This is a dad joke, actually, kind of chapter, okay? I, I wish that I had more time to explain all those dad jokes in there, but, but all throughout, just trust me, if you read this in the Greek, you'd be like, dad joke, dad joke, dad joke, dad joke, like all over the place, okay? So he's saying, Balaam, son of Beor, Balaam, the son of the flesh. That's who you are. You're a son of the flesh. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray and followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Again, you can read the story of Balaam in, in Numbers 22 to 24, but he was hired by the Midianites uh, to speak a curse against the children of Israel when they were coming into the promised land. And so uh, ba Balak comes to uh, Balaam and says, hey, I know that when you speak curses, those curses come. And when you speak blessings, those blessings come. I recognize your deeds. What you speak and prophesy actually comes to fruition. So here I am, I'm going to pay you a royal payment for you to come speak a curse against the children of Israel. And at first, Balaam does good and says, nope, can't do that because these are the Lord's people and I'm not going to do that. But they come back with like a little better group of people, a little better offering. They kind of sweeten the deal a little bit. And Balaam says, let me go talk to the Lord again. Maybe I will come with you. It's a bit hard to discern when you read chapter 22 to 24 in Numbers because it looks like Balaam just obeys the Lord and speaks the blessing and all that. But what actually we find out in Joshua 13, 22 says this, that Balaam, the son of Beor, was the one who practiced divination and was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of the slain when they came into the promised land. He was judged by the people of Israel as an evildoer because he was practicing in divination. How did he speak blessing over the wars? How did he speak curse over the wars? Because he was interacting with the spirit realm and getting words about what was going to happen in the battles and speaking into that through divination. And for his own gain, he took payment, right? He took the payment of Balak. He did still speak a, big, a blessing over Israel three times. He actually tried three times to curse Israel and couldn't. Not because he wasn't going to, but because the Lord didn't let him. Changed his voice to speak blessing. Okay. He was in it for the money. And while he's going to do this, right, this is what this is referring to, while he's going to the do this, speak this curse that turned into a blessing, a, his donkey stops three times along the way, walks off the path one time, and he's like, what are you doing? Strikes him. 
walks off the path another time when there's like a, a sharp uh, like passageway, and he smacks him again. What are you doing? And then finally, Balaam, the next time, the angel of the Lord is before him at a pass, a passage, and the donkey just sits down and then speaks to Balaam and says, Why do you strike me these three times? I've been your faithful donkey your whole life, and I've never done such a thing as this. So why, when I do do something like this, you assume that I'm doing wrong? You should have known, Balaam, that the angel of the Lord is before you, and you better stop. Sometimes the Lord lets us go down the path so that he can emphatically show us his presence that we might turn back. Balaam didn't turn back. He kept on going. And he still couldn't speak a curse over them. Because the Lord's like, not possible, these are my people. So Peter says, they're trained for greed, and they follow the way of Balaam, just doing wrongdoing for their own benefit. False teachers gratify the desire of their flesh. Finally, they promise what they do not have. Verse 17, they are waterless springs and mists driven by the storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. The word here is just like so powerful. A waterless spring. Man, you are to be producing this nourishment for all the world out of the inward portion of the earth, and you have nothing. Waterless spring. They claim to have something, but they don't have anything. They speak loud boasts, but it's foolishness. Verse 19 is, is kind of where that waterless spring comes from. It says, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Peter is saying, listen, these false teachers are in bondage to their own desires. They gratify their selfish desires. They ignore the spiritual realm and reality. And they call this freedom. But actually, they're bound. Verse 20, he goes on to say, For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. That is a hard verse. After escaping the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
they got the whole message. They heard the whole thing. They heard that Jesus is supposed to be my Lord and my Savior, right? The knowledge of the Lord and Savior has actually taken them out of the corruption of the world. The knowledge of it. The thing is, you can have knowledge. You can have understanding. But if you'd actually submit yourself to Jesus as Lord, if you don't actually walk in his saving grace, then you only have knowledge. And yes, that knowledge may have had a powerful effect on your life and brought you out of corruption and brought you to a safe place. Peter's looking at a church in which all these oats have been sown in the midst of it and going, I saw the Lord come back. I saw the church explode throughout all the Mediterranean. And now, at the end of my life, I'm about to die. And I'm looking at this whole region of people, and they're mixed up saying, Jesus isn't coming back? What? He's saying the knowledge of the Lord Jesus has changed you. But if you stop at knowledge, then you've missed his lordship. You just know he's supposed to be Lord. You've just ignored that. He said it'd actually be better for you to have never received the knowledge of the Lord Jesus than to receive it, be saved out of corruption of the world, and then reject the actual gospel and go away living in your flesh. Because in truth, you never submitted to Jesus as your Lord. You only assented to a knowledge of Jesus being Lord. He said, yeah, that's a great philosophy and understanding of life and it has a powerful effect in a spiritual realm. That's not receiving the gospel. That's understanding the dynamic of a religion. Until you come to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, you are my only hope. You are my salvation, you are my Savior and my Lord. I submit all my desires to you. I look into your word and see what is wrong, and I say, that is wrong, and I'm going to walk away from that and toward you. You repent and believe. Anyone heard that before? A few times? Yeah, a few times. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. You live a life of repentance and belief. Repent. (laughs) believe we're good with spilled water it's fine it would have been better for them to not even have known the way of righteousness than to turn back from the holy commandment that was delivered to them what the true proverb has happened to them the dog returns to its vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire you can have knowledge all you want, but until you're cleansed inside, you can wash the outside of your tomb all you want, right? I mean, whitewashed tomb. Until your heart is submitted to Lord Jesus, your heart is not submitted to Lord Jesus. <laughs> and that's where we got to be. And that's what Peter is challenging us with. So before we wrap, we have to ask this question. Who are the teachers in the church? I should come back to this question. Who are the teachers in the church? 
Certainly teachers are those who stand up before groups and instruct in a formal manner. Okay, I'm a teacher. I'm teaching and preaching and all this. But while I think Peter is referring to people in this situation, while I could look around our world and say, oh, this church is preaching a false gospel, and that church is preaching a false gospel, and this religion is preaching a false gospel, I could, I could do that all day. We could talk about that all we want, okay? And happy to talk about it with anybody anytime, okay? There's lots of false gospels out there that are people are formally purveying, okay? There's lots of it all over the place, real close. And so that's a reality, but teachers are not limited to those who formally instruct. And I want to point us to two passages to make that point. First, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 16, 20 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus delivered them. And that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is given to all the disciples. All of us are called to go and make disciples. There's not one of us in the room that is not a teacher in some sense. And so don't pass off teaching to just the person that stands up in front of you. Because you are a teacher. If you're a mom, you're teaching your children. If you're a dad, you're teaching your children. If you're a husband, you're teaching your wife. If you're a wife, you're teaching your husband. If you're single, you're teaching those around you. All of us are teaching coworkers. We're all teaching each other all the time. And we want to like formalize mentorship and discipleship into this, I'm going to get my partner, you're going to get your partner, all this stuff. No. We are all teaching all the time in every way. And so when Peter's talking about there's an influence of false teachers in the church, he's saying, I can't tell you who it is, but it's present. We're all called to make disciples. We're all called to be teachers. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 21, we've all been given a ministry of reconciliation. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. The false teachers are completely regarding everybody according to the flesh, themselves and everyone else included. We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Me, you, every person in the body of Christ is called to be an ambassador for Christ and a teacher of his gospel. We're all teachers. And so then you have to turn the questions back on yourself and go, am I teaching anything false? Sorry. (laughs) Can reread chapter 2. It may be in your devotional time, and ask the Lord, is it me? Because I'll confess, and I think many of you would too, that as you read this list and you heard these things, that these false teachers are proclaiming as teaching and walking in unashamed, that your heart has also struggled with these temptations and struggled with these truths. 
And so we've got to go with three things. And the first is this, and we started it in worship. The first is this, tremble. God is holy. And that word in my mouth doesn't give justice for how holy he is. I could say it the rest of my life, but I'm never going to find anyone like him, and I'm never going to sufficiently describe how holy he is in my words or in my actions. It will not suffice. And so tremble before a mighty and holy God. Man, if you have not taken stock truly in your devotional life with the Lord, how holy God is, how separate from flesh God is, I encourage you, make some time to get before the Lord in your space. Get in the secret spot and go, Lord, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, but if you call to send me, then I'll go. Peter starts out in chapter 1 saying this, and I just like, listen to these words again, that he talks about the gospel that has happened to you, right? If you've received the gospel, this is what you received, and your heart should just be wrecked with what he's given you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. What? God did that for us. God gave us an eternal inheritance. Do you have anything that's eternal? Does anybody have anything eternal that they possess? God gave that to you by the blood of Jesus. Not by your works. Not by your gifts and talents. No. But by Jesus' blood, he gave you righteousness and a living hope through Christ's resurrection. We should tremble before this God. We should be undone by him. Our lives should be ones like, G like Peter who says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus and I'm a, his apostle. I submit my moral following and my desire and will for life to the Lord Jesus. I want nothing else but what the Lord wants in my flesh and in my spirit. I must tremble before him. Second, repent. We must ask the Lord to reveal whether our ways and our words are speaking a false teaching to those around us. Psalm 139, 23-24, we must cry out to God. If you haven't, tremble before a holy God. Just take these two verses and sit with the Lord for a long time. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then do it the next day. And then do it the next day. And then do it the next day. And just keep having this word impressed on your heart. Lord, search me. 
know me. I don't know if, I mean, I've been here and asked this thing and known that I wasn't genuine in asking this thing. So keep asking it, Lord. When you, when you recognize that in your spirit, this feels ingenuous, then say it again until you can genuinely say it before the Lord. Lord, search me, know me, try my thoughts, see if there's any grievous way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. Ask the Lord, do I revel in deception? Do I find pleasure in wrongdoing? Do I gaze without restriction? Do I serve a a desire for wealth and security over godliness? And he'll reveal it to you. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, he's given you Holy Spirit. He will bring conviction to your heart, I guarantee. Repent. And finally, believe. And I just was reminded of Peter preaching in Acts 2. And this is what came to mind as I was finishing up notes. And I just want to read what he says to those uh, around after Pentecost. So, you know, flames of fire fall on uh, the disciples' heads and they start speaking in languages they don't know so that those people that are from other nations actually understand the gospel as they're speaking in a language they haven't learned, right? (laughs) Powerful. He says this to explain what is happening to those around. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foreknew and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all those, all the house of Israel, Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Believe on this Jesus, this Jesus who is raised from the dead, this Jesus that our sin took him to the cross. Tremble before the holiness of God. Repent of the sin that you have walked in and believe again in the gospel that there's nothing you can do to be in God's presence except believe in what Christ has done. We put him there. We crucified him. But he defeated death in the grave. And against all spiritual war and against all sinful desire, we stand in the name of Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. He is coming back. The false teacher said he wasn't coming back. And it's easy for 2,000 years to look back and say, when is he coming back? When is he coming back? I don't know. He didn't tell us. But you know and I know that this gospel in your heart has changed you and molded you into the Lord Jesus' image. And so trust in him with all that you have. Believe in what he has done on your behalf. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, even challenging words to walk through. Um, God, we, man, we need you deeply. We need you to convict our hearts and challenge us. 
We need you to shape and mold us uh, into your image. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, given us your divine nature, not by our efforts, but by your blood. And so we receive it in that way, God. Although we stand against the attacks of the enemy, not on our own strength, not denying their power, but by the infinitely greater power of the Lord Jesus, we rebuke in the name of Jesus all evil powers that might come against this place. They are not welcome. Be gone. Lord, we tremble before a holy God and ask you to have your way in our hearts every single day. God, in our eating, in our drinking, in our working, we do all things unto your glory. And so inhabit our praises, inhabit the sweat on our brow as we work, inhabit our conversations, inhabit our relationships. God, have the whole of our lives, Lord Jesus. And God, we repent. We know that we are unclean and we're broken. And we welcome your reproof because you're a good father and you desire good for us. And so God, when you reprove us, we receive it. We thank you for your discipline. It is like honey to our lips that you would discipline us and that you would show us the right way to walk in. We receive it, Lord, not as bondage, but as true freedom that you have shown us what is true for our souls. That which actually nourishes is what you have revealed about yourself. And Lord, we want to walk in it. And so we believe that not on the basis of our efforts or our desires or our will or our moral character, but rather by the blood of Jesus, you have given us a divine nature Lord, help us believe. We know eternity is at stake in our midst and in the midst of this city. And so, Lord, we ask you to have your way here. Change hearts and minds and draw people unto yourself. They too might know the joy of serving Christ the King. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.